Good morning, everybody. Uh, let me uh, pray for us before we read uh, some scripture together. Father, we just sang uh, together that uh, in your word, we see you uh, more clearly and we see you more fairly than anywhere else. And so we ask that, uh, that this would be true, um, that we would experience it to be true together right now, that as we uh, talk about your word and read it and think about it together, that you would show us the word that bears our flesh right now, that you would show us his grace, that you would bind us more closely to you and to one another. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we have uh, been reading and uh, talking together about what Scripture says about our baptisms. Uh, in particular, uh, what baptism means for those of us who have been baptized or what it could mean for those of us who have not. Uh, and one thing Scripture makes really clear um, is that our baptisms aren't something that just happened to us a long time ago. As we have uh, already heard this morning, our baptisms form our identity right now. Uh, right now, our baptisms speak to how we live and worship and work together. So a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus' baptism shows his solidarity with us. It shows us his desire that was driven by joy, driven by love, to step in and to take our place. And of course, that was, uh, came to its fullest expression in the cross, which is, of course, the reality to which our own baptisms point, the cleansing flood of Jesus' blood given for us. And then last week we saw that our baptisms uh, mean that we have been inseparably united to Jesus and to his body, which is the church. We have been united to that. We've been made a part by our baptisms of this diverse and mutually interdependent new humanity of which Jesus was the first. And this morning, uh, we're going to read and think together about how our baptisms are part of what set us into unity with one another. A unity that we are uh, called to value, a unity that we are called to work hard to protect. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 4 for us. We have 1 through 10 printed, but we're just going to read uh, and talk about the first six verses. So I'll read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word and it's given for our good. So about five or six years ago, uh, I was invited to go to a Christmas party. Allison and I were invited to this party. And uh, I wish I could remember exactly how the invitation was worded, but when I read it, there was this strong implication that we were all supposed to wear an ugly Christmas sweater uh, to this party. I mean, I didn't think I was going to get kicked out or anything if I didn't have one, but it definitely seemed from the invitation that it was, 
that it was part of the deal. And uh, this, this created a little uh, consternation for me. I, I think I own one sweater as a regular uh, part of my life. Uh, and I don't even keep it at home. I keep it here at the office. I wear that sweater when I am cold in my office. And I didn't even buy the thing. Uh, one of you gave it to me. So sweaters are not exactly my wheelhouse. And so therefore, ugly Christmas sweaters are way out of pocket for me. Um, but I felt compelled and I wanted to participate. So I actually bought, I actually bought one of those pre-made ugly Christmas sweaters. And this thing was absurd. It had a, a holiday-themed Yeti on the front of it. And the crowning glory of this thing was an actual stuffed curved horn that came off of the Yeti's head and out into the air in front of me. Um, <clears throat> so that was a sweater that I wore, and maybe you see where this thing is going. I got to the party, and participation was not exactly as I expected it to be. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm not sure that this is exactly true, but it, it felt to me like half the folks there were just dressed really nice, just dressed nice, like you go to a Christmas party dressed nice. And the other half of the folks that were there at that party, um, if this is even possible, they were wearing these kind of like laid back, tongue in cheek, cool, ugly Christmas sweaters. And I'll tell you what nobody else had. Nobody else had a Yeti horn sticking to the air in front of them. But I, uh, I soldiered on, I survived, but I have to tell you that the first 10 minutes or so of that party made me feel things that I did not want to feel. And uh, we've all probably been in spots like that, spots where we would like to know what to wear, what to expect, spots where we would like to know how to act or how to relate, spots where you would want to know what, what's appropriate for me in this place, what's appropriate for this thing that I'm headed into, how should I be there, what is expected of me. And that is the spot where the Apostle Paul's friends had arrived in the part of the letter that we just read together. And here's what I mean by that. The first few chapters of this letter have largely been a picture of the Christian faith from above. And if you read Ephesians 1 through 3 later on this afternoon, you'll see exactly what, what I mean. It's this uh, compelling vision, this overarching vision about how God brings people like us into new life and into a new family through faith in Jesus. It is this really compelling, really beautiful vision of how God has cut across all kinds of cultural and racial and economic and religious barriers that had seemed inviolable to make this new humanity, to make this new family that we enter in through no other qualification than the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And this might be surprising uh, for some of you to hear, but while the Apostle Paul is painting this vision, while he is telling this story of what God has done, he doesn't ask the church, he doesn't tell the church to do a single thing. There is not one ethical suggestion, there is not one ethical request in the first three chapters of the book. It is all just listen to this church and look at this church. And the closest he ever comes is just to ask his friends to remember what it was like before they were in that new family. 
And so now uh, we come here to this part of the letter. This amazing picture has been painted and his friends see their place in it. And now it's natural to wonder, okay, if I'm in the family, how should I be here? Right? What is, what is it that's expected of me here? I'm part of this family that I never dreamed, that I never imagined I would ever be a part of. And now I would like to know how to be a sibling in that family. You know, do I wear the, the Yeti sweater or would that be weird? <laughs> or as Paul puts it, when he finally asked the church to do something, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All of this is true. All of this beautiful thing has happened, and you have been put into a new family, and so here's what's expected, that you walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And he starts painting a picture here of being a Christian kind of from below, how to live in that new life, how to act in that new life, in that new family called the church. Here's how to walk. Here's how to be. Here's what's expected of you. And he begins with this really beautiful, great list of virtues to wear and to put on. We'll come back to those virtues later, but first I want, to see, want us to see together what the end goal of wearing those virtues is. Putting on uh, those virtues, cultivating them, practicing them every day will lead to what Paul says in verse 3. A people who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is the goal of those virtues. That is the first thing he says about worthy walking as a member of this family. That we would be a people eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain unity. I don't know how that sounds to you, but I will admit that that is not not exactly what I would have expected Paul to say. You know, he's saying if you, if you want to know how to live, if you want to know how to be, if you want to know what is expected of you, then the, at the top of the list, this is at the top of the list for you. Maintain unity. You've been made into a new family across all kinds of walls and barriers and borders that nobody ever dreamed, nobody ever imagined would be broken. You're no longer strangers, Paul says back in chapter 2. You're no longer aliens. No, you're fellow citizens. Now you are family in the household of God. And here's the thing that I want you to work for first, Paul says. Here's the thing that I want you to think about first when you think about how to be a Christian. Maintain unity. And I guess the first thing to say about that, after saying that it might sound a little bit unexpected is that it runs so counter to the way that we have been taught to view ourselves. And it runs so counter to the way that we have been taught to view our identities in this world that it runs the risk of being almost unintelligible. Because you know what it means? It means, it means first and foremost that our individuality, that our conception of our own personhood is not the be-all and end-all of everything. You know, my, my desires and my ideas and my rights and my satisfaction and my gain and my comfort and my profit, 
they are not the beginning point for anything. It means the thinking of our faith as, you know, this is a, a private thing that I have. It's a personal thing that I have. It's not even really a category if the faith that we're talking about is Christian faith. It means that we don't live out our faith as a, a series of little spiritual interior transactions with Jesus up in our noggins or wherever. Because he has brought us first into a new humanity. His cross, his resurrection, his ascension made us into a new humanity of which we are a part. His body, as we saw last week, set apart for the life of the world. We are a people first, deeply interdependent and wildly diverse. And that's simply the truth. And part of being a Christian and part of growing up as a Christian is learning to value that unity that we have been given, that new family that we have been given, and working hard to maintain it. And that leads to another thing to say about all this, which is um, that in a lot of ways, we have become used to division. We've kind of made peace with division. And I'm not talking about just the big ones, although they are there. I'm not talking about the big ones that you think about when you think about the church like Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant. I'm talking about all the smaller ones inside of those larger ones, too. Christer Stendhal, who was a, a theologian, who was a bishop of the church in Sweden, put it like this. He said, every denomination, every denomination takes its gifts of the Spirit and builds a little chapel around it. And Presbyterians are as practiced and as good, as, that, as good at that as anyone else is. And we become used to the micro-divisions within those, you know, our proclivities and our preferences and our ideas and the things that were, you know, kind of our little, uh, you know, pet projects that we have improperly elevated and unwisely elevated that become barriers to unity, even within the smallest parts of our body. We've made peace with it. Peace with the divisions that exist, even in how we talk with one another and how we relate to one another in the smallest parts of the body. Now, I'm not, I'm not naive. I know, I know why some of those divisions exist, and there are things for sure that require strenuous effort and serious effort to work through, and there are errors, yeah, that need to be corrected and lines that need to be drawn, and, and that is the point, <laughs> That is the point. That's why Paul, precisely why he tells his friends to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? Not, not so that we'll act like nothing matters. <laughs> not so that we'll whistle our way into some kind of grotesque parody of unity. But so that we can work hard to be, to be a people who exist for the life of the world. So that we can be a people who through that work have become stronger and people who have become more capable and people who have become more closely bound together. Because there is something about our unity that is a powerful token. It is a powerful sign of the love of God to this broken world that's thirsty and hungry for it, even if they'd never say it that way. And you don't have to take my word for that. <laughs> you can take Jesus' word for that. <laughs> 
Because we heard in the gospel lesson this morning that Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for people like us. He prayed for the church, that we would be one. He prayed that we would come into perfect unity. He prayed that we would become completely one so that the world would believe that the Father had sent him, so that the world would know that he, the Father, had sent Jesus, and so the world will know that the Father loves them. (laughs) That was Jesus' prayer. The unity of the church is a sign of the love of God. I know some of you tonight will, uh, will go to that uh, Chicagoland United in prayer on the south side. Just a bunch of Christians from all over the city, from every you know, flavor, every brand, every unit of the church in the city just coming together to pray and to talk about caring for the city. And church, when that happens, the love of God will be on display for this broken world, this broken city. God has already united us. He's he's not telling the church to manufacture unity. We have already been united. What he's telling the church is to value the unity that God has given us so much and so deeply that we work as hard as we can to maintain it. And in case you've uh, been wondering, here's where our baptism comes in. (laughs) Our baptism is... One of the seven things that are listed in verses 4 through 6. These are seven things, church, seven things that encompass everything significant that the church holds. These are seven things that encompass every significant thing that the church holds, and we do not hold them as individuals. You don't hold them. I don't hold them. The Presbyterian church doesn't hold them. We hold them together. They are held by everyone who has followed, everyone who does follow Jesus by faith. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul makes it really hard, really hard to miss the point. These are the things that matter the most, and these are the things that we all share. They are not the possession of this little branch or that little branch. They are the possession of the family. You know, when, when Will was baptized a few minutes ago, he wasn't marked out as a member of Covenant Presbyterian Church. <laughs> And he wasn't marked out as as a visible member of the Presbyterian church, not anything like that. He was marked out as a visible member of the church, the people of God everywhere at all times and in all places who share one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father. Your baptism and my baptism, it means that we have been set into a unity that we have been called to value and work hard to protect. And whenever we remember our own baptisms or see somebody else baptized or even just think of the word baptism, part of what we should be doing is wondering about the meaning of it and asking how we might be more eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
So we do that not because there's some checklist floating around somewhere that we need to work through. We do that because we know, because Jesus prayed it, that our unity as a church, our unity as the family of God is a sign of the love of God to the world. So how do we do it? (laughs) How do people like us work towards unity? And this is what brings us back to that list of virtues in verse 2. There is no formula to unity. There is no uh, list of procedures or steps that we take to achieve unity. There is just this way of being in the world. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's it. That's it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know, in the first century culture to which Paul was writing, and certainly to this church, which is made up of mostly uh, pagans who had converted to Christianity, humility was not a virtue to be celebrated. In fact, it wasn't even considered a virtue. Humility was considered weak and distasteful. It connotated being crushed or debased. (laughs) So, of course, (laughs) of course, Paul leads with it. Because humility is that way of being that means that we don't enter into every single human interaction. Humility is that way of being that says that we don't enter into the life of the world first seeking some kind of respect or thing for ourselves. Humility is that way of being that refuses always to treat ourselves as the most important factor in every human interaction that we have and every time we move through the world. It refuses to say that we're the most important factor in it. Put positively, to practice humility is to face others as those from whom we can receive and from whom we must learn. And when you put humility together, when you practice humility, and you marry it to the controlled strength of gentleness and to the wide and big soul of patience, as Chrysostom called it, then all of these things become governed and controlled by love. When you put all of those things together, you have something wildly beautiful and transformative, embracing. And we know that, or we could know that if we look closer because this is what Jesus looks like. (laughs) This is who he is. And precisely because he is this way, he moved towards people like us, took our place, carried a cross for us and for the life of the world. And to follow him in faith is to be forgiven. It's, It's to be given access to that one spirit who grows us up to look like Jesus and who gives us access to everything that we need to live with humility and gentleness and patience and love towards one another. Church, you got to know, people like us don't just fall into those virtues. You, You don't just wake up in the morning and do them. They are cultivated. They are cultivated together with the Spirit 
through prayer and through worship and through the sacraments and through the daily intentional practice of them together. Wearing those virtues is how we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And when we do that, the promise is sure a broken world sees that they have been loved by the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would do uh, whatever that work is that you need to do in us so that we could uh, not just be hearers of this, um, but that it would absorb deep into every part of who we are. That we would come to the place where we see our own baptisms as being united to one another and valuing that unity allowing it to order the way that we live our lives, allowing it to cultivate the virtues that we live out. Father, we ask that you would do this so that we can grow up in our faith and mature in our faith, so that we can be people who help others grow up and mature in their faith. And we ask that you would do this in us so that we can be a people through whom you show your love to the broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.